This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Well, good morning. Glad to have you with us today at Alliance. My name is Keith. I'm typically helping out with worship team today. I get to bring the message, so lucky you, right? Um, So we're going to jump right in where we were. Um, Last week, we were in Isaiah 6. We're continuing on in the book of Isaiah today, Um, and so we're going to be in chapter 53 of Isaiah if you want to start turning there. Um, And so last week, Pastor Brian um, talked about how Isaiah had seen this image of the holiness of God and how it changed everything. Uh, and, And Pastor Brian prompted us to discover how the holiness of God shapes our reality of him. And so today we're going to continue on in that vein in Isaiah as we look at chapter 3. But at the outset, I want to let you know that um, we're going to be going over a lot of scripture um, from various parts of the Bible. So I encourage you, if you're going to open up your Bible, just leave it at Isaiah 53. And if you want to write down the cross-references of the other scriptures we go through, that'd be great. If you're trying to flip through everything, it'll be hard to stay up with it. Um, We're We're kind of practicing the idea of letting Scripture speak for itself some today. And so there there will be some sections that don't have a lot of commentary in between the Scriptures. So um, we're going to start off, though, this morning with a video. Um, It's from a group called The Bible Project. They have all sorts of great videos. And this one is about the holiness of God. It kind of sums up some of what we talked about last week and also ties in what we're going to be looking at today. And so why don't you turn your attention to the screens? You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful as the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, the hot spot of God's presence. 
And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. 
When Jesus began his public ministry, he announced that he had come to fulfill prophecy. He went into the synagogue, opened up the scroll of Isaiah, and declared the following, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This morning, we are going to be looking at the heart of Jesus' story, recorded 700 years before his birth. Isaiah 53 goes into great detail about the life and specifically the death of Christ. It has been described as one of the clearest presentations of the gospel message in the whole Bible. Charles Spurgeon said that this is one of the chapters that lie at the very heart of the scriptures. It is the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes from our feet, for the place whereon we stand is specially holy ground. This 53rd of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed essence of the gospel. And D.L. Moody described Isaiah chapter 53 as his, quote, creed in print. What is remarkable is the detail that Isaiah records, details that could only be known by someone who had witnessed the event. For example, Isaiah mentions that Jesus would be pierced, alluding to his death by crucifixion. What's astounding is that crucifixion wouldn't even be conceived for at least another 100 years after Isaiah was written. While the sheer amount of prophecy contained in Isaiah would be an excellent exercise in faith building, he's quoted at least 65 times in the New Testament, today we are going to focus on the mission of the servant found in chapter 53. Specifically, we are going to look at the reality of God's love, the extent of God's love, and a response to God's love. Let's begin by reading through the entire passage together. Isaiah 53 and a couple verses before at the end of chapter 52 is actually written in the poetic verse. It is divided into five stanzas of three verses each. The first line of each of the sections gives a summary of that section. The first stanza actually gives a summary of the whole passage. In honor of God's word and his gospel, would you stand with me as we read this together? And if you want to read out loud, please do. If you'd rather read silent, that is fine too. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you. You may be seated. And so as we begin by looking at the reality of God's love, it's important this morning and worth noting that there's an inherent truth that silently shouts the providential love of God. Anyone have an idea of what that might be? Okay. No guesses? Agape is a great word for love, yes. I'm thinking about something more simple. The very fact that we exist, that we are here, that we are created. We were given the gift of life, not by our own faculties, but purely as recipients. None, none of us did anything to be here. God's love is the source of our existence. We are made in his image, and he has created us with the ability to know and love him. The creation itself points to the love of God. When you go out at night and look at the stars, or you go and look at the ocean, maybe a beautiful sunset, or the wildlife that is all over this amazing planet, all of it screams of a creator who loves us and has designed an amazing world for us to exist within. 1 John 4.8 tells us that God is love. From before the creation of the world, there was love. The love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit 
has existed from eternity past. God invited us into his love by creation or through creation. Tony Lane, a professor at the London School of Theology, says this, First, God is love, yet one could not say that God is wrath. In other words, love is a fundamental and eternal attribute of God, while wrath is no more than an outworking of God's character in response to sin. Before creation, God was love, and this love was active within the Trinity. But God's wrath was no more than a potentiality. We don't have to think too hard to come up with a famous Bible verse about God's love. Anyone got one? John 3.16. If you didn't say it, you were probably thinking it. And so if, if you haven't heard John 3.16, I will say it, it's for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But when we think of God's love, John 3.16 comes to mind for most people when asked, how do they know God loves them? Unfortunately for some, this is simply an exercise of the head and not the heart. The greater question is, do we fully believe it? Do we fully believe the truth that God loves us and that he gave his only son for us? When we look at the concept of love, there are always at least two parties involved in the process. There's the source of love, the one exhibiting love, and the recipient of that love. A mother's love for a newborn child, a young boy's love for his father, or a fiancé's love for his soon-to-be bride. Love always involves at least two parties. That does not mean, however, that both parties experience the love the same way. How many parents of teenagers care deeply for their son or daughter only to have them have that love questioned when setting healthy boundaries? Anyone? Being loved and feeling loved do not always walk hand in hand. When I tell my three-year-old son not to run into the street, he doesn't perceive it as love. He thinks I'm ruining his fun. Or when I tell my five-year-old that he can't eat cereal for breakfast and lunch and dinner, he doesn't say, thanks for loving me so much. <laughs> the same is true with our understanding of God's love. We can perceive the events we experience as a direct correlation of how much God loves us, a mistake that can have ill consequences. Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 11 say, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Richard Sibbs, an Anglican theologian, says, Measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in the some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. And Jerry Bridges, an author who's worked with navigators, says God's unfailing love for us is, is an objective fact affirmed over and over in the scriptures. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith 
create it. It originates in the very nature of God, who is love, and it flows to us through our union with his beloved son. But the experience of that love and the comfort it is intended to bring is dependent upon our believing the truth about God's love as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. Doubts about God's love allowed to harbor in our hearts will surely deprive us of the comfort of his love. Defining love based purely on our perceptual experiences, specifically maybe our outward experiences or our outward circumstances, will result in a distorted view of the reality of God's love. The Apostle Paul knew and proclaimed God's love in spite of being beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and left for dead, among other things. How was he able to remain so confident of God's love? Psalm 34 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Paul had personally experienced the grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. He says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul was also devoted, was a devoted pupil of the scriptures and would have been familiar with most of the following verses as well. Micah 7 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Psalm 149 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Deuteronomy 10, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 36, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips praise you. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. In Jeremiah 9, we see, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And Lamentations 3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The Apostle Paul would have also been familiar with some of the teachings of Jesus, some of the parables he, he told in Luke, we see that Jesus telling the parable of the lost sheep and how he was willing to leave the 99 to go after the one because it's so precious. And that all of heaven rejoices over the one who is found or who repents. 
He also told a parable of a lost coin and a woman searching for those coins. And when she found the one lost coin, she rejoiced, called her neighbor, said, Rejoice with me, I've found my last coin. And Jesus tells us that all of heaven rejoices when the lost are found. And then, of course, the parable of the lost son who went to his father and said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. The father complies. The son goes off, squanders all his money on every pleasure he can imagine, finds himself broke, wishing he could eat the food that he's giving to the pigs. He says, I'm going to go home and at least I can work for my dad. And yet Jesus says that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the, the, son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. You can see the extent of the love of God throughout the scriptures. It's not a New Testament thing. It's not a Jesus thing. It's a thread throughout all the scriptures, the love of God. One that we don't have time to go through is Psalm 136. It has 26 uh, stanzas in there, and it's a call and response psalm. I encourage you to maybe read it later today or sometime this week. Um, but the, the, the verses will go, the Lord rescued us from Egypt. And then the response is, His love endures forever. And then it'll say, The Lord brought us to the promised land. His love endures forever. And it repeats that 26 times. And it's just a very encouraging, encouraging read. So I encourage you to do that sometime this week. Okay, well, now we're going to move on from the reality of God's love to the extent of God's love. Rick Warren says that God's love is like an ocean. You can see its beginning, but not its end. The extent of God's love is seen in Jesus leaving his heavenly home, coming to earth, living a life of obedience, and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2 tells us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 5 tells us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians, we see that we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and that though he was rich, yet for our sake, 
he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in Mark 10, we see that even the Son of Man came not to, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in light of Christ's great love for us, let's revisit Isaiah 53. This time, though, I invite you to close your eyes as I read various excerpts from it and just listen to what Jesus has done. There were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, for he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so now let's look at a response to this amazing love that we've seen. Philip Yancey writes that sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life, whether that's a wife, a father, a boss, etc., thinks you are. How would my life change if I truly believe the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me? If I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees? Romans 8 says, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Ephesians were encouraged to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And finally, Ephesians says, I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the saints to comprehend the length and width and height and depth of his love. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled. Lord, your word goes forth and it accomplishes what you want it to accomplish, Lord. And I pray that every one of us today understands your love in a new way, Lord. I just pray for a comprehension, Father, that goes from our head to our heart, Lord, that we can know in any circumstance, in any setting, Lord, that we don't have to perform, we don't have to pretend, we don't have to achieve, but we are loved as we are, as your children, that in Christ the righteousness of God has been imputed upon us and that we are now your sons and daughters and we can boldly come to the throne of grace and say, Abba, Father, that you are a God who loves to give good gifts to his children, that you are not wearied by us or bothered by us, but that you love us. And when we do face discipline, Lord, you do it for our good. You do it because you want to see us conform to the image of Christ for our joy and your glory. Father, we just ask that you do what you want in each one of us. Give us tender hearts before you. We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.